Welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation podcast series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Worling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on the healthcare and life science market and serve as co-chair of McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice. In this series, we are extremely excited to bring you perspectives from a wide variety of healthcare private equity players. Throughout the series, we will bring perspectives from investors, investment bankers, McDermott partners, and colleagues throughout the sector who are very involved in the change that is coming in healthcare. I think this will be a great opportunity for our listeners to get to better know some of the key players in the health private equity market. 2020 certainly was a different year for all of us with the COVID-19 pandemic raging, but despite the pandemic, the volume of transactions in health and M&A within the health sector really was not significantly impacted. We saw over a thousand deals, according to DealLogic, 1,157 transactions completed in 2020. Interestingly, 273 of those occurred in the fourth quarter alone. So it was a very busy fourth quarter. Total transaction value was a little over 250 billion. While that was down from 2019, that was ahead of the 2018 number and pretty consistent with 2017. So the long story short is the COVID-19 pandemic did not have a significant downward impact on M&A within the healthcare space. And private equity played a very large role in many of those transactions and continues to play an outsized role in the healthcare M&A market. Joining us today is Brian Fortune. Uh, Brian is a senior managing director and co-founder of Farragut Square Group. I'm really excited to have Brian with us to share his insights and expectations for the state of healthcare private equity under the Biden administration. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to found Farragut Square Group? Uh, yeah, Chris, I started out uh, on Capitol Hill. I spent a decade on the Hill and uh, working for the House uh, leadership, uh, primarily uh, Congressman John Boehner. And then in the early 2000s, I started the Marwood Group with uh, Ted Kennedy Jr. and my current business partner at Farragut. And then uh, after 10 years of growing that business, we started Farragut. And, uh, and as you know, we joined the uh, McDermott family uh, last year in 2019. We're thrilled to have you. When you and Ted first started Marwood Group, uh, was private equity the focus or were you, were you more focused on hedge fund consulting and, and that, that business? So we started off focused on, on the equity markets. You know, that was really kind of the, the genesis of it. Uh, a lot of people you know, basically noted the fact that they, they were having trouble figuring out what Washington was doing. And it was an exciting time because, you know, Congress was starting to debate uh, what became the Medicare prescription drug benefit. And, um, you know, 
the private equity came out about a couple of years later. So it started off when uh, when I, a large private equity firm that, that I think everyone knows called us and asked us if we could do the diligence on uh, on what at the time was the largest hospital buyout transaction in history. And from there, you smelled a new market and, and got very busy. Yeah, it grew very organically and um, and we've enjoyed it. Yeah. And how, how do you currently, obviously you live in DC, how, how do you stay in touch with um, and keep your finger on the pulse of, of what legislators and the administration are thinking? Well, we have a great team that that has a lot of what we call process knowledge. So, you know, they they pretty much spent have spent their career working, uh, you know, very closely on the regulatory or policy front. So, and, and they also have you know enough experience dealing with our clients that they kind of understand, you know, how they look at the world. But you know, they infuse it with their own knowledge of how Washington actually works. Brian, could you tell us, you know? Who are the key committees and the key legislators that are making some of the decisions that really might shape healthcare legislation in 2021 and in this new administration? Chris, that's a great question because you know what what I think most people often miss is that healthcare policy in Washington is controlled by a relatively small cast of characters. So you know, setting aside the regulatory agencies for a minute. In, in Congress, the only, there's kind of only four areas that really matter on healthcare policy. One is the House and Senate leadership it may play an important role, but a lot of it's drafted in three key committees. So, you know, in the House, that's Ways and Means and the Energy and Commerce Committee. And in the Senate, it's the Senate Finance Committee. And do we see more legislation originating in the House or in the Senate committee, or is it just split? It used to be that the House drove a lot of the detailed conversation, and particularly the Ways and Means Committee. Less so when Democrats are in charge, mainly because the House tends to take, uh, on healthcare, they tend to take a more aggressive position kind of vis-a-vis healthcare providers. So it's not uncommon that the Senate actually winds up being the dominant force in the conversation. And, And there's a few areas I think we'll talk about where that's still true. Sure. And as we sit, President Biden is getting his cabinet approved. Could you tell us about the new HHS secretary? So Xavier Becerra is the nominee for HHS secretary. Uh, I expect that he will be approved. And, you know, he, he served in the House. He served on Ways and Means. He is, I think, more progressive than kind of where the healthcare committees tend to land on a lot of questions. But, you know, more importantly, he's coming off of a stent as, as the California Attorney General. And it, it's going to be interesting to watch because obviously he is, he's certainly been very active in, in a litigious manner in the healthcare arena uh, in California. So, you know, I, I, presume that most of his time for the near term is going to be very much focused on COVID, but there's a big question of where he might go, you know, once COVID is is firmly in the rearview mirror. His nomination was a little bit of a surprise to the medical community, wasn't it? It was. There were, you know, I, I think people expected any number of other candidates to, to arise. And, you know, I, I think 
from our perspective and, and knowledge, it seems like there was a, a little bit of political horse trading that led to his nomination. And, um, you know, that, that sort of thing happens in Washington, especially when a new administration comes in. So let's shift over into what kind of changes may come in this administration. What do you think from the perspective of our listeners, uh, what challenges might healthcare private equity investors face under the administration? And similarly, you know, what, what are the opportunities we'll see out there? So let me start with three big takeaways. If you want to focus on three things, the first one is we're going to see a fairly, uh, a much bigger stimulus in the first quarter than we may have if there had been split control of Congress. What that means for healthcare is that there's a much higher likelihood of significant additional relief to states on Medicaid. What that obviously means for a lot of transactions that we work on is that if you're looking at businesses that have a lot of Medicaid uh, exposure and their reimbursement, they're going to face some pressure, but they're not going to face the types of drastic pressure that you may see in early state budget submissions. So, you know, when you see big across the board cuts, we can assume that there may be something maybe more on the low, you know, low end of single digit side. And for those businesses, you know, because of the way state legislatures work, we're going to have a fair amount of clarity on, you know, what that near-term pressure would be by uh, late spring, early summer. Second big takeaway is you're gonna see incremental coverage expansion. So now look, Congress is paper thin right now. The margins of control for the Democrats are razor thin, which means you know, you're, you're gonna hear a lot about big, bold, radical changes that the progressives want, you know, things like a public option, people wanting to talk about Medicare for all again, but with the vote margins we're talking about, none of that's actually going to have legs and, and gain any traction. But one thing they can do, because Democrats control all of Congress now, is they can go beyond just shoring up the ACA, which they can do on the regulatory front, and they can actually pursue some incremental coverage expansion through it. And the primary mechanism for doing that is going to be to uh, infuse some uh, additional dollars into the subsidy palette for the program. So, you know, they're, they're going to make it uh, more attractive for a slice of people who currently are going without insurance coverage because they find that the ACA marketplace plans are still, uh, you know, unaffordable for them. All right, third big takeaway, and this isn't something that Congress necessarily wants to do, but it's something that they're going to have to do. And that is, um, they're going to have to address the Medicare trust fund. So we expect that they will enact, as part of their healthcare legislation that they pursue, they will likely pursue some uh, Medicare growth cuts. So, you know, although different providers may have to fight off some micro policies, as a general rule, the way to think about this is if you're looking at a deal where the provider has a lot of Medicare. You just have to assume over the next five years that, you know, at least a couple years in that forecast are going to be uh, much lower growth than recently. So base growth of perhaps, you know, 1% rather than, you know, kind of the two and a half and up that we've seen recently. Fascinating. It's a, it's a broad array of areas that are, that will see an impact I wanted to probe a little bit deeper first on kind of the the first prong you mentioned, Medicaid support for the states. 
what sectors do you think that will create some opportunity for? Is that, uh, for for example, is um, you know pediatric and family dental is sometimes on the chopping block of state budgets and can be cut both just rate wise and coverage wise. Is that a sector that maybe you know bolstered by that Medicaid support? Well, I'm going to tell you the good news in that a lot of states over the last like two or three budget cycles have kind of identified areas where the state itself might've been paying a premium compared to a lot of comparable geographies. So, you know, what we've, what we've seen lately, and, and remember some states actually have had budget pressure in the last cycle and they, they adjusted for it as well. Most states are gonna try to avoid, you know, specifically targeted pain. You know, if they don't, if it's not like, say, Texas with pediatric home care a few years ago or, you know, adult dental, which is always an optional benefit. So in in lean times, they will cut that freely. Mm -hmm. And in the Texas case, obviously, they they determined that they were just paying far more than comparable states. But, you know, what we've seen in New York and, and, you know, heading into California and some others is is more there, I think they're just going to kind of go the across the board route. And, you know, again, they will probably do a modest, a lot of states will perceive probably a modest across the board, you know, mild hit to provider rates. They'll do that on a one-year basis, and then they'll just essentially do a wait and see. They'll come back in a, in a second kind of emergency session to round out the biennium after they get a better sense of, of their uh, how their state revenue cycle is recovering. And then on the incremental coverage expansion that that you're predicting that you know expands kind of the availability of plans uh, of ACA funded plans and so forth how does an investor think about that do we just think about that as more insured patients available to use services in which they're investing yeah that's correct i mean i you know in terms of in terms of deal activity you know, we certainly have seen a pickup in in things that, you know, tie into services that are sort of ancillary or around the insurance market. So, you know, in this last year, we've seen people, you know, looking at things like uh, exchange brokers or, you know, other kind of businesses that, you know, tie in sort of a technology play into you know, either identifying coverage or, or, you know, targeting kind of ancillary tie-in services to that market. Can you comment or explain to our listeners a little bit of what happened with the 2021 Medicare physician fee schedule? I know the initial proposed fee schedule was corrected by the year-end relief bill. Has that all shaken out now and, and is somewhat stable or is there uncertainty on physician reimbursement that that may continue? We expect that PPMs are going to start seeing a lot of interest again. So as you know, last year, even though the deal activity was still pretty strong, a lot of the PPM-focused deals uh, outside of add-on acquisitions, you know, there, there weren't a lot of original deals. Part of that was because, you know, a lot of these had pressure on elective procedures that was, you know, squeezed them pretty hard back in Q2. And the other one was- And that pressure was not reimbursement. That was just COVID pressure from shutdowns and stay-at-home orders and so forth, right? Correct. COVID put the clamp, you know, pretty much everywhere for Q2. 
And you know, even now, a lot of those, a lot of those subsectors have have shown their volumes have rebounded, but you know, not all of them. Some of them are above, but a lot of them are kind of you know up at ninety percent. So they haven't even fully recovered, although they expect to to have a stronger two thousand twenty one. But the other big issue was these overhanging Medicare cuts to a number of specialties. And it was, for those of you who aren't aware, it was a byproduct of, of something very positive, which is that uh, Medicare and, and CMS were significantly boosting the amount of, of money that they pay for primary care and particularly the, the four evaluation and management visit codes. But everything that Medicare does, unless Congress tells them otherwise, is budget neutral. So in uh, spending all of this money, and also they were spending money on, on kind of this interesting follow-up visit G-code that they were very fond of. To pay for that, they were levying a, a greater than 10% across the board cut to the physician base rate. So you know, if you're talking PT or ophthalmology or uh, anesthesiology or a number of other specialties, you were looking at mid to high or even in a couple of cases, 10% cuts for 21. Now, our view is always that this would, this would be ameliorated through either CMS changing their methodology or uh, Congress was gonna get a chance to intervene if CMS did nothing. And that's what happened. CMS did only a smidgen of, of change in their final policy, but Congress swept in and did a number of things. Now, without boring you with every last detail of what they did, they basically gave about 7% across the board back to everybody. So for example, if you were the ophthalmology group, uh, you were looking at a 6% cut across, you know, kind of your whole code set. Uh, now they're in positive territory, about 1%. PT, you know, went from negative nine down more to, depending on the, the asset, more like uh, minus two to three. It certainly was an interesting few weeks as that all got sorted out near the end of the year. <laughs> and it was a it was really a one-time cut. So because of that, I expect that, you know, a lot of these spaces are going to, you know, we're going to forecast a fair degree of stability for them going forward. Are there any sectors of the healthcare space that the Biden administration, uh, you know, wants to encourage growth in, or basically as sectors that might see some opportunity for investors under the administration? There will be a few. I, I always tell clients that a lot of what happens on the federal and state regulatory front is, is multi-year trends. So you, you don't see a lot of those particularly disrupted when you have a change in political power. Those are more isolated. You know, same thing too. If something's becoming hot, it tends to become hot at the grassroots level before it gets to you know the point of somebody pushing it. But let's look at a few of these. Um, there's obviously, I think, trends that continue to favor deals in the PPM space. There are trends that favor a lot of activity in post-acute, particularly home health and hospice and also outpatient therapy. There is still strong tailwinds in the behavioral space. And then, you know, we're also seeing, uh, we see a lot of activity or interest in, in things that 
COVID has kind of elevated. So, you know, I, I think there really has been a, a bit of a breakthrough in, in places like remote monitoring. And some spaces have seen a very positive tie-in with telehealth. Brian, let's talk about surprise performers. What areas were the unexpected great performers in 2020? Well, obviously, I think as we discussed, PPM activity, particularly on original deals, was was down. Anything that had elective volume that had been crunched slowed down a bit. But what we saw was people look look elsewhere, and particularly we saw a lot of uh, you know a lot of pharmacy services deals. Uh, we saw a lot of activity in the compounding space in the 503A, 503B. Um, you know, there was definitely a lot of interest with healthcare services that had a clear uh, uh, and discernible telehealth uh, benefit that tied in. Uh, a lot of deals in the medical supply business, because uh, obviously that's that's you know less influenced by some of the other trends that were going on. And um, and then we we saw renewed interest in a lot of managed care kind of tie-in plays. So you know we saw renewed interest in things like the PACE program. And the last one that's sort of coming back around at it, I would say, uh, makes a lot of sense is um, people are looking at interventional pain uh, management. Great. And kind of last area I wanted to ask you about is uh, Medicare Advantage. Continue to see pretty steady patient growth in Medicare eligible seniors who are opting into a Medicare Advantage plan. What do the Democrats think about Medicare Advantage these days? And, and where do you see that heading in the coming years? Democrats as a whole are always, there are a number of them that are a little more critical of Medicare Advantage. Let's go back to what we said earlier in the, in the conversation. On the healthcare committees that matter, Medicare Advantage is, has a very strong political position. And part of that is, is just pure numbers. You know, at this point, Medicare Advantage is, is now roughly 40% of the program nationwide are getting close to that. And it's still growing at very healthy clip year on year. So people can see on the near horizon, a time when one out of every two Medicare beneficiaries are actually in Medicare Advantage. That translates into political power, especially if you look at where Medicare Advantage has been growing. A lot of those areas are represented by Democrats in Congress. Uh, and it's very popular. So Medicare Advantage will see some pressure with the new administration, but not the type of pressure that would contract the program. We're talking more a focus on things like uh, coding intensity and you know things in the risk adjustment world. So I, I would characterize it as moderate pressure, but not uh, an existential crisis. Great. Well, Brian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, why don't you give us your uh, email address and contact info? I'll make it easier. If you just Google Brian Fortune Farragut Square Group, uh, everything will pop up. And I won't have to read off a web address. <laughs> Great. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to Brian for uh, information. He's got a fantastic team at Farragut Square Group really have their ears to the ground in D.C. and in the states and can be wonderful advisors as you consider potential investments. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. Uh, for additional insight and analysis about healthcare private equity investments and today's changing healthcare and life science private equity transactions landscape, 
check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Science News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.